So our girls get overlooked because the criteria, the diagnostic criteria for autism is based off of males. So the behavior characteristics that we put under autism and Asperger's are all derived from men and boys. We need to start looking and asking some different questions diagnostically to capture these girls. Otherwise, we're not going to because they're not going to red flag because they don't display the same behaviors as boys do on the spectrum. Welcome to the Tilt Parenting Podcast, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. Today, I'm happy to be welcoming behavior and educational consultant Julie George back to the show. Julie was on episode five of the Tilt Parenting Podcast, where we talked all about executive functioning. Today, we're going to be talking about something very different, but something I know is an area of interest for a lot of the Tilt community, and that is girls on the spectrum. Most of Julie's clients these days are teen or tween girls with Asperger's, which, as you'll hear later, she breaks down into two different types. She calls her quiet and bright girls and her autism with an attitude girls. Because people are starting to become more tuned into the fact that autism presents so differently in girls than it does in boys, this is a timely conversation and one I highly recommend parents of any differently wired girls check out. And before we get to the show, for the month of December, I've decided to take a quick minute at the beginning of each episode to bring attention to an organization doing great work in the world of support of differently wired kids. This week, the organization I'm sharing is understood.org. Understood provides a ton of free services and content for parents. On their website, their mission reads like this. We want to empower parents to understand their children's issues and relate to their experiences. With this knowledge, parents can make effective choices that propel their children from simply coping to truly thriving. I am a big fan of Understood because they have so much valuable information on their site that is easily accessible and all free, including a parent toolkit, online parent coaching, live webinars and Twitter chats where we can interact with experts, useful articles, and an online parent forum. Understood's operated by the National Center for Learning Disabilities, and they're always grateful for tax-deductible donations. To learn more, visit their website at understood.org. And I'll also include links in the show notes page for this episode, which are at tiltparenting.com slash session 37. And now let's get on with the show. Welcome back to the show, Julie. Thank you, Debbie. I'm super excited to be back. Well, you were one of my very first guests on the podcast when we did an episode together on the issue of executive functioning. And if listeners have not checked that one out already, I highly recommend it. Executive functioning is a challenge for nearly all differently wired kids. And it's actually one of our most listened to episodes. You can find it at tiltparenting.com slash session five. But at the beginning of that conversation, we spent a lot of time talking about one of your passions at the moment and where you're spending a lot of your focus and energy, and that's girls on the autistic spectrum. And we got a lot of feedback from listeners after that episode who wanted to hear more. And also whenever I post articles about differently wired girls on the Facebook page, the response has always been huge. And I know that parents and caregivers with unique girls in their lives are looking for more information and insight. So here you are, and we've got lots Here of questions for you. <laughs> 
Yay. So, well, let's start with you. Would you mind just before we get into the meat of this, tell us a little bit about how you got into working with girls and maybe as part of that answer, tell us about when you first noticed there was a difference in the way that autism shows up in girls. So one of my first experiences with girls on the spectrum was actually when I was teaching elementary school. So back in 2005, 2004, 2005, I had historically always worked with kids, kids on the spectrum and all of my students had been boys. And all of a sudden I get this girl and she's different than my boys. Like just right off the bat, I realized this. And one of the biggest things I noticed was just her social motivation. She wanted friends. She wanted to go play with everybody. She got her feelings hurt if she didn't, if the girls didn't invite her into their group and and, in the playtime at recess. And it just was so startling to me. I was like, this is really different than my boys. My boys kind of do their own thing. Like they're at recess. They're fine. They're playing by themselves. They're good. And she was having a really different experience than my boys. And she at the time was the only girl I had in my class and my first girl I had ever worked with. And so it was really a challenge for me because I wasn't really sure what to do and how to go about it. That year, I actually ended up discovering a couple of other girls on our campus. And and kind of that was my first time noticing girls present different. They don't present like the boys. They're they're masking a little bit differently um, than the boys do. And then I ended up moving up to Washington and t- um, took over a middle school program. And that first year in my middle school program, I got three girls on the spectrum as students that I carried for sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. So then I got more exposure to it. And I was like, okay, this is so fascinating. It's really so different. The social interest between the girls and the boys is so different. And it's interesting because it's not that boys aren't socially interested because I would never make that statement. Boys are socially interested too, but in a really different type of way. They like to do it different. Girls want to be part of that bigger social crowd where boys are fine with having a friend or two. Girls tend to overshoot. You know, they, they want to have friends and they're going for the popular crowd. You know, they're not really noticing the girls that might be more similar to them in their areas of interest. Girls make more attempts than boys do of trying to get out there and initiate those social conversations or get part of that social group. And so, you know, my middle school girls, it was boy drama. It was one of my girls flipped off a boy in the cafeteria because he was sitting with another girl and she had a crush on him. And just some of those things mm-hmm. that I see, right, with more neurotypical kids. And I was like, oh, this is so fascinating. And my girls were wanting to date. And so that was my first kind of an initial, you know, interactions with that. And then I, I ended up getting to the UW and I just, I wanted to work with girls. I was like, how can I collect girls? So that's been my mission is to collect girls. That's what I call it. <laughs> Collecting girls. So I have about eight girls I see in private practice right now. And I love it. I love, they just, they keep me on my toes in a really different way than my boys do in terms of therapy and, and how we work and that kind of stuff. So yeah, so it started a while ago, but I felt like the difference was really apparent right away. But I have since then really over the years noticed just how different, you know, the girls make eye contact in a way that boys really don't. Girls are, you know, their areas of interest are more 
they're closely related to their peers than boys are. I don't see the repetitive behaviors in girls as much as I see it in boys. So my girls are going to be the girls that sit with a book. They're going to be drawing. They're going to be doing fan fiction, right? So they're, they're sitting with their peer group. So their areas of interest don't stand out the mm. way boys can stand out sometimes. Mm. Um, and they tend to kind of go inward a little bit more. So you don't hear it as much. Boys like to talk about their areas of interest. I feel like a lot more than girls do. Girls don't kind of talk and talk and talk and talk about it. Um, Interesting. Boys do. Yeah, it is interesting. So it's interesting to kind of watch the difference. But I think that eye contact and that social motivation are the two top differences that we just, we automatically assume that kids on the spectrum don't make great eye contact. And we automatically assume they're not interested in their peers. It's so interesting. Yeah. And just the, the, talking, talking, talking. That's, that's my life (laughs) with my (laughs) child. So I'm like, Oh, that would be very interesting. But okay, so you've talked about the social motivation, the eye contact, but these are things that girls who are on the spectrum, kind of break outside the, the quote, unquote, typical mold of what we would assume or think someone on the spectrum looks like. So what then is it like, how do you then notice or how does it even come to a parent's attention or to a teacher's attention that this child might be on the spectrum if they're not recognizing those more expected markers? So I feel like girl, well, I, I, I'll kind of house it into three groups. Historically, the girls that get picked up and get diagnosed tend to be more severe on the autism spectrum, like when they get an actual diagnosis. So that that's historically what we've seen is like, oh, if we get a girl, they're really severe in their autism. So we really can spot that. And then we have the second group of girls that ends up with a diagnosis, but they're not severe. There are higher functioning kiddos. And that group for me breaks into two groups. And so the first group is they're quiet. They're really bright. They're the girls reading novels in the back of the classroom. And nobody picks up on them because they are doing what we expect in society. They're staying small and quiet. <laughs> they're just, they're doing their thing in the classroom. And so they don't get red flagged and they generally don't get red flagged until they're older when we really start to notice the social pieces. And that usually comes from a parent perspective because historically schools don't pick up the social stuff. I mean, you don't, you don't get that reporting when you're sitting down at parent teacher conferences all the time. We report socially on kids if they are having disruptive behavior. But if I've got a girl that's sitting on the wall and reading a book at recess, it doesn't red flag for anybody because that's like, oh, that's so great. She's reading. We want her to read, you know? And then it's not till they get older and either the kid's reporting it or parents are like, wait a minute, my daughter is nine or 10 and she doesn't have any friends. Like something's going on here and they start diving in a little bit more. So that's one group of girls that I see. I think the second group of girls that ends up having a hard time too is I call these girls autism with an attitude. So they tend to, they're also really bright, but they are really intolerant. They have very little patience for others and they tend to be louder and more expressive, but not in a way that we see with the boys. And so their behavior comes up as behavior, as being non-compliant, as being bossy, which is that, you know, that area girls kind of sit in, in our society anyways. If you start speaking up, then you're, you tend to be on the bossy side. And so that's what it gets looked at as. And so then that kid gets red flagged, but 
nobody's looking at autism. They're looking at more really intensive behavioral interventions. And so they're doing a lot of discipline, right, in a school level with them, or parents are using a lot of consequences and discipline with them. My autism with an attitude group tends to be a little bit more rigid than my quiet group. My quiet group is more flexible, but my girls that are a little bit feistier and speak up more are a little bit more rigid. They're very solid on their views and they're going to express those. And so they don't get looked at as a skill deficit. They get looked at as, well, they just need to be disciplined into following the rules. And because they're bright, they should know what they're supposed to be doing. So therefore, they don't get picked up on either until we get, again, till late elementary, middle school, when it's like, well, wait a minute, none of these interventions are working, mm-hmm. right? We need to be looking at something different because this kid's been disciplined and disciplined and disciplined, and it doesn't stop her from telling her teacher off and letting her teacher know that she's smarter than her teacher, right? <laughs> or right. those different scenarios that we end up seeing play out. But we don't see it because, again, there's that social motivation. So we're not looking at it as a social skills deficit. And what we don't realize is that girls, you know, women in our society, girls in our society, there is a high level of expectation socially around communication. We're expected to make small talk and chit chat and have those conversations. And our girls don't know how to do that. They get right to it. They're going to be direct. They skip over that. They're not taking on that perspective taking. When my girls with an attitude, one of my biggest phrases to them is, it's not what you're saying, it's how you're saying it. So it's actually what's coming out of your mouth is valid. It's really a valid point. But the way you're communicating it, your tone of voice, the words that you're choosing, your body language, your facial expressions, all of that needs to be shaped so that your message actually gets heard. Uh, Because right now it's getting lost on your audience, on your teacher, on your parents, you know, whoever that is that they're trying to have that communication. But we have that higher level of expectation around our girls and then they're not able to meet it because part of being on the spectrum is that we have difficulty with communicating. Yeah. Wow. There's so much to unpack here. It's just fascinating. I, I don't normally do this when I'm interviewing someone. I've written a page of notes. I, I kind of want to dive into all this. And I, I love the <laughs> label autism with an attitude, by the way. Awesome. Yeah, I have some fiery girls. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. So and you know, let's talk about that getting the diagnosis later. You know, I, I recently had a mother on the show who really struggled to get a di- diagnosis for her daughter because the developmental pediatrician she was going to kept saying, no, it can't be ADHD, it can't be autism, that's not what it looks like. And so it took a long time for her to finally find out what was going on. And what does that mean? You know, if girls are getting diagnosed later, knowing that early intervention is so important, are they kind of behind then in in working on these issues? Or what does that look like? Yeah, well, so our girls get overlooked because the criteria, the diagnostic criteria for autism is based off of males. So the behavior characteristics that we've put under autism and Asperger's are all derived from men and boys. And so we really, I think that was one of the big changes for the DSM-5, you know, was we need to start looking and asking some different questions diagnostically to capture these girls. Otherwise, we're not going to because they're not going to red flag because they don't display the same behaviors as boys do on the spectrum. I think in terms of later diagnosis, you know, I, I feel like all the kids that I've seen, they end up doing really well. I don't, I think our higher functioning kids, you know, they've got 
good cognition skills. You know, they, they, when you get a kid that's receptive and, and that's, that can be a benefit to later diagnosis. A lot of those kids have had a lot of negative experiences. And so they're really receptive Mm -hmm. to let's do something different or what's wrong, or I want to talk about this, or they've, they now have an awareness that they're different from others. um, So they're more open to those conversations and therapy. But I would say the real big challenge for all of my girls is their self-esteem hands down is just usually in, you know, at rock bottom by the time they get to me when they've had a diagnosis at 13, 14, they've had a lot of negative social experiences. And our girls, this is a big difference between our boys and our girls, our boys have negative social experiences too, they'll shrug it off a little bit more, or they'll talk it through and then they can let it go. Our girls hold on to it for years. I have a sophomore in high school that we'll still talk about the time she was bullied in first grade. It still sits that close to the surface for her. It's still something we have to work through and get some awareness for her to realize it's that experience that's keeping her from initiating and trusting people and making friends now. So I think that's the hardest part because they come in and especially if we don't know what's going on, there's been a lot of, so my girls will talk about their areas of interest too. They don't do it the same way as boys, but if given an opportunity to talk, they will. And so I'll have girls come in that, yeah, my parents are really annoyed because I constantly talk about my fan fiction. And, you know, when I'm like, well, do you ask them questions about themselves? No, I, I've never thought to do that. So there's been a lot of that just kind of harping, you know, you do this, you do this. And so they have that built up of, oh, I do this. Okay, something's wrong. So when they come into me, one of the things I like to do, and one of the things I think is just important, I think for all of our kids on the spectrum, but it really helps with girls is just to normalize, normalize. Yep. I find that girls on the spectrum tend to do these things. The girls I see on the spectrum you know, really like to escape into reading a lot or escape into their fan fiction and kind of help them with that. I also let girls know that, you know, a large portion of what they're experiencing is just being a girl and being a teen girl. Yeah. And, you know, like most of it's, this is what it's like to be a female. And then you've got this small layer on top of autism that takes it to that next level for you, you know, but it's not, you know, your autism is not creating all of this. It's not everything that's going on. It's just this small little lens. But it feels like that when you've been constantly told that all the things that you're not doing right. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the real negative to the later diagnosis. But I also see girls really pick up some nice skills and really change. I mean, I've seen some phenomenal behavior change because they're willing to also think about it and take on those perspectives and think about shaping their behavior. And again, because they're socially motivated, they want to fit into the group. So they're willing to do what it takes. It's like, oh, here's the roadmap that nobody's given me this whole time of how I'm supposed to do this. There's so much more to maintaining a healthy gut microbiome than eating a balanced and healthy diet, travel, certain medications, and of course, something many of us have plenty of in our daily life, stress, are just some of the other factors that can totally throw off our systems. Enter Ritual. They created Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Their supplement includes two of the world's most clinically studied probiotic strains to support the relief of mild and occasional bloating, gas, and diarrhea. 
I like Symbiotic Plus because it delivers all this goodness in one single nested minty delayed released capsule designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract. And because the capsules don't require refrigeration, I just keep them on my desk so that I get that helpful visual cue every morning. Plus, they're easy to bring with me when I travel. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com tilt for 25% off. We just celebrated our two-year anniversary of Gotcha Day when we adopted our sweet Haskell, my cat who acts like a dog, plays fetch, and who I'm pretty sure has sensory processing differences. Are you getting a new pet soon? That means you'll need to think about getting the necessities like food, toys, a bed. Something you may not be thinking about, though, is pet insurance. That's why you should check out ASPCA Pet Health Insurance. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program offers customizable accident and illness plans, making it easier for pet parents like you to help your pet get the care they may need. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program has been around for over 18 years, and they've helped more than 600,000 pets during that time. They allow you to customize your plan, helping ensure that your pet's plan is as unique as they are, because vet bills can really add up, especially when you're least expecting it. It's simple. Use their app to submit a claim and you'll receive reimbursement for eligible vet bills directly into your bank account. To explore coverage, visit ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash parenting. That's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash parenting. Again, that's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash parenting. This is a paid advertisement. Insurance is underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produced by PTZ Insurance Agency Limited. The ASPCA is not an insurer and is not engaged in the business of insurance. I mean, it just breaks my heart to hear, you know, I've spent so many years working and writing on behalf of teen girls, not all girls struggle with low self esteem, but it is something that many girls do. And that loss of confidence is, is not unusual for girls to go through as they transition into teenhood. And it's really, it's tough to think about these girls have been getting the message, you know, their whole life that they're different, they're strange, there's something wrong the way that they talk or the you know how they behave in the world and them kind of making that become more and more evidence that there's something wrong with them and not you know so I imagine you know and tell me where I'm wrong but is there some relief when girls find out that there's a reason for why they are the way they are Yes. Yes. I see that a lot where, okay, this makes sense because they feel it, right? They know it. They're, they're, they're modeling kids. They're paying attention to their social environment, right? Cause they're, they're doing some modeling. So they're seeing, Hey, I'm not doing those things or I'm not liking those same things, which is why when I have parents that ask me, I just had a parent of a girl who's in third grade ask. And I was like, I just feel like the earlier the disclosure, the better for these, for all of our kids on the spectrum. Honestly, I just think it's better for them to recognize it. But our girls are picking up that difference sooner than our boys tend to. And so when I can know that, then it helps put things in a different context for me. And I'm not stuck feeling, you know, I get a lot of, you know, not feeling good enough. My girls have a lot of negative self-talk that we have to kind of work through and get that changed around and making sure that we're 
changing up that script in our head because they've just, they, you know, if we think something's wrong, we go out and collect evidence in our world that something's wrong, right? So they bring all those experiences and then they're going to have experience after experience where things didn't go right. And therefore that validates this something must be wrong. So yeah, I find that girls are, you know, happy to read their reports. They all are interested yeah. <laughs> in reading the reports in a way that my boys are not. <laughs> they want to read the medical diagnostic report from the psychologist <laughs> and and go through it and, you know, really take a look at that. So yeah, they like that information. Well, I'm glad you said that too, about telling our kids what's going on. That's something, you know, we've I'm sure actually, you know, for for listeners who who haven't listened to the first interview that I did with Julie, Julie was, was someone who worked with Asher before we moved abroad. And when he had first been diagnosed as having Asperger's. And so I've seen Julie in action. Um, We've been lucky enough to see Julie in action. But that was a question I had for you, because we had just found this out. And I said, Well, when, you know, when do we talk to him about this? And, you know, you encouraged us the sooner the better. And, ultimately, I think that information is so helpful for them. I agree with the idea of normalizing it. And and also, it's kind of redefining what normal is, right? And making the differences just part of who they are and not a not ha- not assigning any weight to it in terms of it being a good thing or a bad thing. So thanks for sharing that. Yeah, absolutely. It's strengths and weaknesses. And I I always say to the kids that see me, because of course I get, you know, I'm working predominantly with teens. And so they're not like the most thrilled to come in necessarily every week. And I'm like, you guys are getting the roadmap to you. Like, I wish I had gotten that at this age, you know, it usually takes you until your 20s or 30s before you really start (laughs) to figure yourself out. And so you're getting a jumpstart on everyone else of knowing who you are and knowing how to work your strengths and knowing the strategies you need to put in place for your areas of challenge. And it's not anything more than that, right? Autism doesn't have to have this huge weight. It's not, I've had to work with some of my girls on that because they do get the diagnosis and then they're like, they want to tell the world they have autism, right? And they're like, hi, my name is, you know, Sasha and I have Asperger's. And it's like, "Mm, but that is not who you are. That's not, autism doesn't make up Mm -hmm. all of you. And so I've done some of those word boards with girls where I've had them come up with, you know, adjectives about themselves to kind of put it into context. You know, your ADHD and your autism are two parts of all of you and who, what makes up you. Um, And so they don't need, we need to give them the proper placement and it doesn't need to be this big, it doesn't have to have a big spotlight on it. Mm, I love that. At the end of the day. Yeah. That's great. So I recently read that the boys to girls ratio of kids on the spectrum is four to one. And I'm wondering, you know, in your opinion, do you think that figure is inaccurate? I'm assuming yes. But, you know, do you think there are many more girls on the spectrum who just haven't been diagnosed? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think that there are way more girls. I mean, I feel like I meet adults even that I'm like, you know, we'll, we kind of describe them as the broader phenotype, meaning like they're kind of on the outer edges. They probably wouldn't get diagnosed with autism, but they've got a lot of those same traits. So yeah, I do think that there are a lot more girls out there. I think that, you know, because of our testing, we don't pick them up as much. I was reading not too long ago, you know, they are, you know, there's a lot of research going into why is there this discrepancy? Because we know that there is. And, you know, there's a lot of scientific literature around the female protective model and how just, you know, 
females have a higher tolerance for harmful genetic mutations. And so then we might not see those come up in girls the same as boys. So I think there could be a little bit of that, but I think girls just don't get picked up. I mm. really don't. I think that they, they kind of tend to figure out how to make it through, you know, especially our stay small and be quiet girls. You know, they're just, they're going to kind of do their thing and they're going to stay small and stay quiet. And, and so then no one's going to red flag them for that and see those struggles, those social struggles. And I think that's the hard part in schools because if schools are one of our first fronts of kind of, you know, I see that from parents. Well, the school didn't say anything to me. You know, school parents sometimes are like waiting. Well, if there's a problem, schools are going to say something. And, you know, our schools aren't picking up on that more social piece of behavior for our kids. And if I've got a really quiet girl that my biggest concern is that she's reading her book too much, I mean, that's not, you know, nobody's going to think of that as a yeah, negative. There's no and alarm so, bells. There's yeah. no alarm bells. And she raises her hand and she contributes her one piece of information to the group. And I'm not picking up the fact that, you know, she doesn't really interact or have those social friendships. And, you know, we don't think about the long-term effects of that, you know, and one of the biggest long-term effects is that we, we have a group of girls that are socially motivated and therefore if they don't end up forming those relationships, we're going to see more mental health issues as they get older, right? We're going to see higher mm -hmm. levels of depression. We're going to see high levels of anxiety in those girls. Um, same with our boys, you know, I see more depression and anxiety in my socially motivated boys than I do some of my boys that are like, I'm good. I like being completely by myself. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I'm, makes I'm, I'm, sense. Good. Yeah. I'm good. But when I start to have that awareness, I start to have these feelings around it. And so it can be really hard for them as they get older and trying to formulate those friendships. It's high stakes. It, you know, you, as you're probably starting to see, when you get to middle school and high school, the way we interact, it just changes. So then, and it's this, I think of it as like, this gray area. I don't know what they're doing with their social interactions. It's not the same as when they were younger and the play was a little bit more concrete or the games were more concrete that the kids played in. Now it's this, there's a lot of nonverbal that goes into our interactions when we hit the teen years. And so if I've got a girl that doesn't know how to do this when it's more black and white, they're really going to be lost at what this interaction looks like when it's gone to gray and it's nonverbal and there's no real rules to it. And people are just interacting, but there doesn't seem to be a formula to how you do this from their perspective. Right. Yeah. Well, what tips then do you have, you know, for parents who are listening, who have a differently wired tween or teen daughter about how they can best support them? I mean, I think my friends who have daughters are, all, you know, who are neurologically typical are really struggling right now because it is it, things do change so much they do tend to go more inward and and it's hard to kind of keep an eye on what's happening socially so how can parents support their daughters who are on the spectrum who are in those fledgling teenager years a few things that I kind of think that pop up for me is definitely working on that positive self-talk because the girls have a lot of negative self-talk. And so kind of getting that shifted for them. Another area that really was eye-opening for me when I worked with girls, and I had never really put this together, was validation. And so just really validating. And I think all kids in general need to be validated. But I think sometimes we tend to be like, here's the problem. Let's solve it. 
here's the problem, let's solve it. And, you know, they really just need to be able to say what is going on and to have somebody listen and just validate that for them and be like, yep, I hear what you're saying. As opposed to, you know, sometimes we, I I always like to separate out the time that we just talk and let validation happen and the time that we're actually teaching skills. Because we can take every moment and opportunity and make it a teaching moment, but that's not always really useful for our girls. They don't really want to hear how they could have seen that social situation differently, right? They just want to vent out what they thought happened and giving some Mm -hmm. validation around that. And then with my teen girls, I think one of the biggest things I'm working on with them is paying attention to their intuition. And I think that's a big thing for us to pay attention to as adults, how making sure we're talking about our intuition and how we're developing that and listening to that inner voice. You know, my girls, you know, the teen years are hard because there's more risk involved in terms of these peer interactions and and the activities we're doing. And so how are they checking in with themselves and seeing, checking in with their bodies, which is goes back to why, like when kids are younger, that emotion regulation is really important to teach, not just to get rid of meltdowns, (laughs) which is important when we Mm -hmm. have kids that are having meltdowns. But long term, when they get to their teen years, it's important that they're able to get messages from their body because their body's going to send the messages as to like, is that a good idea to go with this group of kids? Should I go and do this really quickly? Right? They're they're going to need to to be able to be aware of that. And if they mm-hmm. haven't developed that skill, then that's going to be lost on them. You know. And I just one of my teen girls, we just had this talk, and she had done a risky move with some peers, and I we talked about it, and she's like oh, yeah, I know that feeling. I didn't know that that had a name. <laughs> I was like, yes, oh, it has interesting. a name. <laughs> it's called intuition. I need you to start paying attention to it <laughs> because you knew. And for her, she had gone into the woods with a boy who had asked her to go back there. And when they got back there, he disclosed that he liked her. And, you know, love my girls. They're feisty. They're direct. She doesn't like him. So she was like, I had no problem telling him I didn't like him and that that's not okay. And I don't think of him that way. And I was like, except you're in the middle of the woods by yourself with a boy. Right. right. Not a great time to be disclosing that you don't like him. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. And luckily he was a really nice boy and nothing, you know what I mean? Nothing came of that because he was great. But that doesn't mean that the next time that wouldn't fall that same way. And just getting some awareness around some of those social situations, the different levels to those social situations. And I think for all teens, I mean, I, I feel this way with my boys too, but especially my girls, in the teen years, it's really helpful for them to have somebody to talk to. And whether that's that they have a therapist that they really bond with, or whether that is parents have a high school or college girl that they could meet up with their daughter a couple times or once a week or twice a week. I think it's nice for them because, you know, you get to the teen years and teens start feeling like their parents don't know anything. And so that, and that's just typical. So then it's hard to get the teens to be talking about some of this stuff. But if we bring in a different perspective and somebody that's more peer closely related, they'll, they tend to pick up on some of those um, behaviors or some of those, they see those social situations through the lens of that person too, or take that feedback in a little bit different way. But having that safe place to disclose, and I don't think, you know, several of my teens, the parents are very like, you know what, they enjoy talking to you. This is where they come and talk. You know, I'm okay with that. And so not feeling bad if your child's not sitting down and telling you every single detail, but where is that outlet for them? Because they're not, you know, part of the normalization is 
you know, you and I through our teen years, you know, we had a lot of times where we felt uncomfortable or we were wondering, is this behavior that was happening or that we're doing, is this normal? But we had a peer support group we could check in with about that to normalize it. And most of the time, our teen girls don't have that. So they don't have any way to normalize, oh, what I'm feeling is okay. Okay, this is what every single girl is feeling. Um, And to kind of take it outside of their heads a little bit. Mm -hmm. If they're already feeling like they're different, they they would never assume that everyone else is feeling that way too. Yeah, exactly. So I kind of feel like in the younger years, I really... When I'm working with girls, I work heavily on the social skills and the communication and the emotion regulation in way more of a direct teaching kind of way and the way that we kind of think of ABA therapy and working with kids on the spectrum. But when we get to the teen years, it turns into more of a coaching and conversation model. We're still having those conversations, but it's not as this is what it looks like or this is the lessons. It's really talking with them and getting their feedback because it's a broader it's social skills and it's their communication. But, you know, I'm also teens need to learn how to take care of themselves, how to eat right, how to do exercise, you know, how to, you know, do manage their schedules. I mean, there's just a lot that starts coming with those years Mm -hmm. and those independent milestones. And so it's important to switch it to more of a coaching, hey, what do you think went well? Or what, how do you think we should problem solve this? And getting them better at trying some things and not us adults always providing the solutions for them. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. If you like this show, there's a decent chance you'll also enjoy the Shameless Mom Academy. Hi, I'm Sarah Dean, the founder and host of the Shameless Mom Academy. The Shameless Mom Academy is a podcast for moms that centers moms more than it centers your kids. I'm not going to teach you how to make baby food or how to make your three-year-old or 13-year-old stop having tantrums. Instead, I'm going to bring you back to yourself. For the last 20 years, I've been helping moms through growth and transformation. Inside the Shameless Mom Academy, I help you identify who you are and who you are becoming. 
Look, motherhood is hard. It brought me to my knees many times and sometimes still does. Returning to who I am and who I am becoming allows me to decide how to show up in all those sticky motherhood moments, but also in all my other relationships and in all the ways I show up in my various communities. So come check out the Shameless Mom Academy wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm willing to bet you'll leave feeling a little inspired and maybe even completely fired up. And you'll probably laugh a few times because I promise we never take ourselves too seriously over here. With 700 episodes to choose from, you're likely going to find something that sparks and speaks to you inside the Shameless Mom Academy. What I love uh, the the suggestions you have for what parents can do, I think, were so interesting. That idea of paying attention to intuition I do a lot of work on that myself. And so I have talked with Asher about that a lot because I want him to know he can trust that voice. But I've never heard that as kind of a formal approach to working with kids on the spectrum. And it makes so much sense. It's such a valuable, I mean, it's something everyone could benefit from. But I love that you're doing that work. And then I had a question about the positive self-talk. So just in case there are people listening who don't know exactly what that sounds like or what that means. Could you give us an example? So I love Brene Brown's work. And so I will talk to my kids about, you know, kind of those inner critics or those gremlins that are kind of always telling us, you're not good enough at this, or you don't do this well, or, you know, my teen girl that has this bad history. It's like, you know, there's something wrong with you. You're never going to make friends. It's kind of always her go-to line, right? It's that she just is never going to make friends because she had this bad bullying experience. And so we'll sit and talk about, okay, what can you say to yourself instead, right? This is a new situation and kind of collecting that evidence of support around you've had some really nice friendships. So let's look at the last couple of years of how you've had some friendships, how people are showing up in your world, how they are having connection with you and kind of sticking with, no, I'm a good friend. I am a good friend and I need to find the right group of kids to be friends with. Cause that's essentially the disconnect. She's ended up picking people that were not good fits because she wasn't going off of that intuition. She was going off of, you know, like I said, my girls tend to fall more with like the popular girls or just those girls that shine a little, you know, that are just more outspoken. And so how are you matching up with the people you're making contact with and what your skill set is? So you're a good friend. You're really great at listening and having her say that instead, I just need to find the right friends to make those connections with as opposed to you're not a good friend. Nobody likes you. It's like, well, that's not true. People like you. Here's your evidence around how people like you. Yep. I have people I sit with at lunch every single day. They like me. And so getting her to shift it that way or getting girls to shift it that way and be thinking about what is that. And also, I just think a lot of it's awareness. A lot of times our girls don't even realize they have this tape running all the time in their head. And so sometimes when they just stop and start paying attention to it, they're like, oh, yeah, I kind of do say that to myself a lot. And it's like, Mm -hmm. yes, you do. So let's say something different, right? (laughs) Or, you know, I don't have a lot of friends yet, but I will have friends. I don't, you know, it's not that I don't have friends. It's I don't have that yet. Um, Getting them to kind of be thinking, you know, the power of language and how we use those words. Mm -hmm. So, all right, before we we go, 
I'm wondering if you have any favorite resources that you can share with us for parents who are listening, who want to learn more or read more. Are there some great books out there or thought leaders in this space that they can check out? Like I said, I really love Brene Brown's work. You know, she's done some stuff. She actually has a CD on parenting. And I think it's just a really nice way to be thinking about that lens. So I I will use her a lot with kiddos, but I have a couple of others as well that I will email you so that we have some resources in there. Great. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming back on the show and for sharing all of this wisdom and insights about Differently Wired Girls. It's really fascinating. I know we're going to get a lot of feedback on this episode and I know it's going to be really helpful for our community. So thank you again for coming on the show. I also, I'm going to say this on recording so I can make sure that we plant the seed that we want to have you back on to talk about emotional regulation one of these days too, because that is something else that you are absolutely brilliant at and have a lot to share as well. So Thank you again, and we look forward to having you back on. Thank you so much. I enjoy doing this. So it was very nice to be able to sit and have a conversation with you. And hopefully there's some good nuggets out there for your listeners. You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. For the show notes for this episode, including links to all the resources Julie and I talked about, as well as to find out more information about our unofficial sponsor for this episode, understood.org visit tiltparenting.com slash session 37. If you like what you heard on today's episode and you haven't already done so, please consider subscribing to our podcast on iTunes or leaving a rating or review. Both things help our podcast get more visibility. And lastly, if you're not already signed up for our newsletter, I'd love for you to join our Tilt Parenting online community. I send out periodic updates with links to new podcast episodes, articles, and resources just for you. Thanks again for listening. For more information on Tilt Parenting, visit www.tiltparenting.com. Are you overwhelmed by the things that get in the way of you doing what you want to do? Are you looking for ways to simplify life to better align with your values? Do you want to create space in your schedule so you have room for more of the good stuff? Play, joy, relationships, gratitude, and more? If you answered yes to any of these questions, I invite you to check out Edit Your Life, a podcast to help you edit the unnecessary from your life so you have more room to enjoy the awesome. Through episodes with me, Christine Ko, and a range of super smart, compassionate, and thoughtful guests, you'll come away with big picture insights and practical ways to declutter your home, schedule, and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. I have always believed that small moments and actions matter tremendously. My goal is to help you find agency and space in your life through doable baby steps that will leave you feeling accomplished instead of overwhelmed. Check out Edit Your Life wherever you enjoy your podcasts.